Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. Today we hear part two of our recap of nearly a year-long expository study of Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation. We pick up midway in our look at these churches, so if you haven't heard part one of this message, we encourage you to listen to that one as well. Leading our study, here is Pastor Alex Cataroja. Sardis. What was characteristic of this church, they were a church of having a reputation of being alive, but our Lord says are dead. The historical context for this church, again, we couldn't know. We had some possibilities on who the church founder may be. But when you read the Old Testament and you hear of the people, the Hittites, well, in ancient of ancient times, Sardis or that region or area was ruled by the Hittites. It was known for its public gymnasium, theater, and stadium. And also, Sardis was known for the oldest coin that can be found in world history, and that's called the Lydian Stator or Stator. And this town had many temples and shrines erected to Greek gods, goddesses, and Roman emperors. And at the time that this letter was being written, the great temple Artemis that was in Ephesus there was also a temple that was under construction for Artemis, for that deity, by the time Sardis was, this letter to Sardis was written. And we've learned a little bit about an early church father by the name of Melito. And I've made the statement and claim that his work and writings may have helped influence the eventual legalization of Christianity in 4th century AD under Constantine. As far as its commendations, they had a reputation of being alive. We're familiar with what a backhanded compliment is. You know, someone kind of commends you or gives you a compliment, but it's really a backhanded compliment. When Jesus says, you have a reputation of being alive, it's kind of a backhanded compliment. In other words, they receive their reward. You know, when our Lord taught that when you give and whatever you do, do it in secret, and then your heavenly Father who sees from heaven, sees what you do, he will reward you. But if you were to parade your works and your deeds to be received praise among men, and he says you've received your reward, in that same vein, when he says you have a reputation of being alive, it's likely that that was important to them, of this appearance of being alive. And it's as if our Lord said, you've received your reward, you have a reputation of being alive. But he goes, as we'll see, you're dead. But there were a few in Sardis, our Lord said, did not soil their garments. And when we broke that down, quite literally, they didn't sleep with temple prostitutes as the others were. So apparently, there are those who were part of the fellowship in Sardis who were sleeping with temple prostitutes, but yet there was a few of them that didn't, and Jesus was commending them for not doing that. Criticisms. As, is, as is, was characteristic of them, they had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. And another thing about Sardis, he says, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. And do you recall, and I kind of asked this question, we're all familiar with, was that Ephesians 2, when it talks about the good works God has prepared in advance for us to walk in them? And I asked this a question. I want to ask us a question again. Is it possible that our 
Heavenly Father, plan some good works for you, kind of line things up for you to do it, and you don't do it? This is case in point. They had incomplete deeds. You can even see the deeds that have been prepared in advance that you should walk in them has been incomplete. So there's this accountability aspect of it too. You mentioned it, Jeremy, obedience, seizing the opportunity, obeying, loving, sacrificing in those ways. So it's possible, based on what was descriptive of this church, that we too can have incomplete deeds in the sight of our God. And therefore, he, as guys will see, he's going to exhort them to complete those deeds while you still have time or else. <laughs> we know God is love and that he desires none to perish, but that all would come to eternal life. That's his desire. God cannot love because God is love. But we also know that not everyone is going to be recipients of that love because that comes through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he can have this desire that none would perish and he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their sins and live. So these incomplete deeds are, you can say, are his desires for us to walk in them. And as far as his will and plan, that was taken into consideration. So whatever happens, it's not going to thwart anything. But it doesn't eliminate the accountability on our part. I don't know how he works it out. It's amazing. But as far as Sardis, the good works that was set before them is about to die and go unfinished. And it's because they soiled their garments, because they slept with temple prostitutes. And did you notice, I, I didn't over-spiritualize that. We took it at face value and what it says and what it's communicating. And you can only attribute that these unfinished deeds is because they were more concerned about indulging their sinful lusts and passions. As far as exhortations, Jesus gave them time to wake up and strengthen the things that remain, their unfinished deeds. He also exhorts them. He says, remember the gospel, keep it and repent. And he goes, or else Jesus will come like a thief. And when we learn, we did a study, like a thief. It's in reference to judgment in the day of the Lord. And he goes, if you don't repent and take heed the warning, Jesus will come like a thief to them at an hour that they do not know. And what we learn is that this is prophecy of the great battle of Armageddon that's in store for this world. And Armageddon will happen at a time in history. And for those who are the subjects of judgment and wrath, It'll come at an hour that they do not know. So for those who were raised to resurrection of judgment, Jesus will come upon them like a thief at an hour that none of them knows. So in other words, so these, I'm going to say this in air quotes, believers in Sardis who were engaged in temple prostitution, who didn't repent of their evil deeds and didn't complete the unfinished deeds that was set before them, when Jesus warns them, if you don't repent, when you are raised at the great resurrection of judgment, you will participate in the great battle of Armageddon in which he will come upon a thief to you. It's a warning, a very severe warning but our, uh, by our Lord. So the unredeemed will be in darkness on that day. But for those of us who believe 
Just like the few in Sardis, that day won't apply to us because we're not children of darkness, but we're children of the day and we look forward to our gathering with our Lord in the sky. And then as far as promises in this letter to Sardis, the few faithful believers will be dressed in white. Dressing in white, it speaks of purity and righteousness. It's the heavenly attire that Jesus himself will provide. And there's this kind of picture. Remember the picture and the imagery I gave us in one of our studies when our, our Lord was in, his, in John's vision, the glorified Son of Man was dressed in a robe to his feet and around his chest was a gold, golden sash. And when we were looking closely at the relationship in the Trinity, I suggested to us, I believe the Father clothed the Son with that robe and that golden sash around his chest. It's kind of like, you know, if there's a a father, let's say, and there's a son getting married or wearing a tuxedo and going to some formal event. And it's as if, like, you know, the father is like fixing their bow tie and getting them all nice and, and neat and put together. So kind of in that imagery, we kind of have like the father dressing the son and then the son in turn dressing us, his church, his bride. That's one of the promises that we'll have in store. So I'm going to suggest that we're going to be clothed in a robe and our Lord will clothe us with it. And it's because of his righteousness and his purity that he imputed to us and that'll be manifested when we are clothed with white robes. And this is what he promised to not only the few in Sardis, but this applies to all believers. What was also promised in Sardis, he says he will never blot their name from the book of life. And we learned eternal security is affirmed. It's as if if God is taking attendance and the book of life is what determines our heavenly citizenship, he's saying that our names will never be blotted out and that we will be always marked present and eternal heavenly citizens ultimately, of the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, which is to come. For those of us who believe, we will never be blotted out from that book of life. We will always be marked present when that book of life is opened and read. And another neat thing, as if that's not enough, Jesus will confess our names before his Father and the holy angels. So I don't know if you thought you were going to go straight to the Father, Christ will take us to him and Christ will introduce us to him (laughs) and he will confess our names before his father and before the holy angels and that applies to all of us pretty cool promises isn't it man we got two more letters Philadelphia and when I thought about it I'm glad I found this slide I was like you know Philadelphia just like you know John the apostle the author of this book What did he call himself? The disciple who Jesus loved. And I thought, you know, along that outlook, I guess you could say, or perspective, you know, Philadelphia, that was the church that Jesus loved. You're like, wait, but didn't Jesus love all the churches? Yeah, I'm I'm not unbelievers. Yes, I'm not going to get into the weeds too much there. But as far as what was characteristic of this church, he loved this church. And he loved them so much that he said that he will make the synagogue of Satan come and bow down 
at their feet and make them know that I have loved you. So this promise was unique to this church. As far as its historical context, the church founder was unknown. As far as its name, it was named after one of the kings of Pergamum, that is Adelus Philadelphus. And the kingdom of Pergamum happened after the death of Alexander the Great and after the known world at that time ended up being divided and what subsequently came to power was this kingdom of Pergamum. And there was this one king named Adelus Philadelphus and that's how Philadelphia got its name. But as far as Philadelphia, it had magnificent temples and shrines erected to Greek gods, goddesses, Roman emperors, and had magnificent public buildings. It was known as Little Athens, which is a complement of the prestige of this city. As far as Philadelphia, it was known for its wine and hot springs for medicinal and therapeutic purposes. And in his letter to Philadelphia, we talk briefly about one of the early church fathers, Ignatius who wrote many letters, and one of them was to this church. And what Ignatius called out was their exceeding purity. So even from our early church father, Ignatius, when he wrote to Philadelphia, one thing that he commended them for was their exceeding purity. And that's exactly also aligned with what our Lord does in this letter. Here's some brownie points. You guys ready? When we were in this letter... One of our studies was the key of David. And we delved into Isaiah 22, and we wanted to see what it meant when Jesus says that he has, the king of da- he has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Okay, you guys ready for the two questions? Hopefully these are fairly straightforward, hopefully. What is the key of David referring to? And secondly, who gave him that key? So what is the key of David referring to? The kingdom of who? David. David. Thank you. He has the key of the kingdom of David. Very good. And who gave him that key? God the Father. Good. The kingdom, the key of David, is a reference to the Davidic kingdom. And the Father is the one who gave him that key. And as you recall, when God promised King David that he will always have a son sitting on his throne... That was also a prophetic promise of ultimately the son of David, the son of God. In other words, when God spoke to David and says, David, I want to bless you in your house. I want to bless your kingdom that you'll always have a son sitting on it forever. The father said his choice is his one and only son who will come from his line who will rule and reign and sit on his throne. So the father chose his son to fulfill this promise that the father made with King David. And because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, there is nothing that the angels who joined in the angelic rebellion nor any man or world power can do to thwart which was spoken of and prophesied by Almighty God. Here's more browning points. We spent a lot of time in this letter. When Jesus says, I am coming quickly, how is that to be understood? I gave us three choices here. A, he could come in any moment for the rapture. B, 
He will pay a visit to that church in Philadelphia during their lifetime. Or C, he is coming at the end of the age to render to every man according to what he has done. A, B, or C? Very good. That's exactly it. And what's interesting is, you know, when you read some commentaries, they say, oh, he's coming quickly. And they subjectively you know, read that and interpret that and say, oh, well, then he must, because he, writ, he wrote to this first century church, how can quickly be 2,000 years? I go, I go no, I, I, I kind of get that thinking, but with what you just did right there, how did the authors of Scripture interpret things like that? Did they do what you did? Because you're going to have to be able to model how the authors also handled te- the text. So when Jesus says, I am coming quickly, is it so far to say when that time comes and he is returning, that it'll be quick? And that he'll get quickly to work as well? He will quickly reward and quickly judge? Speedily? Yeah. Okay, as far as commendations, Philadelphia was known for good deeds. They were not ashamed of the gospel. They haven't denied his name. They endured the hostility from the Judaizers. And they held fast the gospel. They kept the word of his perseverance. As far as criticisms, Philadelphia had none. The other church, as we covered, was Smyrna. So Philadelphia and Smyrna didn't receive any criticism. As far as exhortation, it was pretty straightforward for these believers in Philadelphia. He says, continue to endure enemies of the gospel, including those who claim to be Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And he says, continue to hold fast the gospel and faith. As far as the promises in this letter, faithful believers will receive a crown, and that crown would encompass righteousness, eternal life, and glory. And Jesus also promises to make us, the believers of Jesus Christ, who make up the church, pillars of truth in the heavenly temple of his Father. And Jesus will write on our minds and hearts, synonymous with our forehead, the name of his Father, the name of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and his new name. So just like this picture of Christ clothing us with white robes and crowning us, he will also autograph us with his own hand. And finally, lastly, we get to the seventh letter, and that is to Laodicea. I think this is pretty straightforward. When you think Laodicea, they're the lukewarm church. As far as its church founders, we couldn't be definitive about that. It's unknown. There were some plausible possibilities. As far as how it, got its, how it got its name, Laodicea got its name after the wife, Laodice, of a Greek Seleucid king, Antiochus II. And Laodicea was known for its wealth and economic prominence during Roman power. And it also was known for its production of ISAV. Something about Laodicea that it was known for as well. It wasn't a very positive reputation. It was known for having poor tasting and smelling lukewarm water. 
And that would be unlike their neighboring towns, Hierapolis, who had hot springs, or Colossae, who had cold springs. And it also had a great Jewish presence that settled there after Babylonian captivity. Now, as far as Laodicea, as far as commendations, they didn't have any. It is the only church of the seven churches to have nothing positive to say. Okay, I'm going to ask us a question. At the time that this letter was penned to Laodicea, was there anyone there who was saved? I'll give you a hint. There was no commendations. Not even a few, like Sardis. No. I argue it's no. But could they still be saved? Yes, if they take heed the exhortation. But at least at the penning of this letter, there is nothing descriptive for that church there that any of them were saved. They thought they were, but they weren't. As far as the criticism, because he found out that they were neither cold nor hot, but are lukewarm. And they claimed to be rich. They, claimed, uh, they acquired wealth, and they had no need but our Lord says they fail to realize that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Again, bringing home the point that at the penning of this letter, they weren't redeemed. You ready for some more brownie points? In our I Stand at the Door and Knock study, we delved in to see what it meant when Jesus says he stands at the door and knocks. What door is being referred to? And what is knocking associated with? So first question. What door is being referred to when he says, I stand at the door and knock? You guys remember? It's in the next chapter. Heaven's door. There's a door in heaven. And when he stands at the door and knocks, and when we look at other references of that, he is like right at the door. Like he's like literally like at heaven's door ready to come. He's very close. And what is knocking associated with his return? Now, it can be said that Jesus knocked 21 times, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, and everything that came in between. And I want to make this note. There's some mystery here. He says, I stand at the door and knock. When we looked at the parable of the wedding feast, it's also possible that he might knock on actual doors for certain elect. For example, the 144,000 Jews that were sealed and preserved. Because those 144,000 are later found to be with Christ on Mount Zion. It's possible that before they arrive there, that he knocked on their doors and he dined with them and served them. So there's kind of this dual truth in that Standing at the door and knock is in reference to his imminent return, like he's at the door. But yet, there is this mystery that this can also be a promise for certain elect that he will pay a visit and dine with them and he with them. So sorry for those gospel tracts. There is nothing that I can say that supports that he's saying he's knocking on the door of your heart. I think it's a little more than that here. As far as exhortations... He exhorted them to buy from him gold refined by fire, white garments, and eye salve to anoint their eyes. And here was the translation. They believe that they can see, however, because they don't recognize their true spiritual state, 
that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Their blindness, you can say, remains. So when Jesus offered them these things, gold refined by fire, or white garments, or eye salve to anoint their eyes, he was offering them saving faith. So at this time, again, case in point, they weren't saved at that time, but he's offering it to them. He offered them saving faith, and if they do that, they will be given a white robe to cover their nakedness and eye salve to give them eyes to see their true spiritual condition and see clearly who this biblical Jesus really is. And when we get to the promise now, he says he will dine with us. And I gave us, there's at least two kind of groupings here. There's going to be dining at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So many believers will participate in that. But also when we learn the lessons from the parable, after that supper, he returns from the wedding feast, he will dine with another group. And one of the promises, and this is a pretty neat one, he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. He's going to grant us permission to sit on his throne, and that is the throne of David that his father planned for him. So that's a recap of the seven letters to these seven churches. And what I did was, and you can take this for your personal note, I took it all and I put it on one slide now. And here, you can use this as a reference point, but if you ever want to go back to it, I try to just kind of keep in line on certain characteristics of them, including their promises. But here you can kind of see them side by side on what was said and contained in these letters. We should have just went to this. <laughs> That's cheating. But I do want to get to some takeaways. Okay, so now, okay, we went through all that. Okay, great. We got a good history lesson. And there was a lot of places where it was applicable and instructive for us. But what are some takeaways? Now that we've gone through our disciplines, coming with that open mind, kind of that blank slate, what were some takeaways? Here's, here's, and I've said this before, the entire book of Revelation is a parable shrouded in mystery. So it doesn't surprise me at all that there's just so many different perspectives on this book because it's a parable. And with parables, there could be some subjectivity or there's a tendency to be subjective. And, there's this, and this parable is shrouded in mystery. So we need to recognize that the entire book is a parable of the end times and it's shrouded in mystery. But here's what's unique about this parable. It actually is using seven physical, like real first century churches as part of the parable. That's like, who can only do that but our risen Lord himself? He taught in parables to his disciples and he's also teaching somewhat in parables, but he's using real life churches that it's not only applicable to them, but also takes us to the end. Like what? And what's my case for that? In the parable of the sower, when the disciples came to him, and we'll pick it up in Matthew 13, and he says, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them. He goes, to you that has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. 
For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So what I'm I'm saying is this. The mysteries, not only of the kingdom, but even of the details of the end time, has been given to the churches. And even some examples in these churches, let's say Laodicea, could it also be said of them, while they see, they don't see, and while hear, they don't hear, nor do they understand? So to them, it's falling on deaf ears, so to speak, but he goes, but to you, but to the redeemed, to the church, we've been given insight to know the mysteries of how things are going to unfold. So it's going to take some pretty serious dedication and disciplines to give ourselves a shot of understanding this book. So that was one takeaway, is he's using actual seven churches as part of this parable that takes us to the end. Okay, what else is a takeaway? When you look at these letters, and I'm still, I'm still putting it together, but when you look at Ephesus, and he says, left your first love, and there's false apostles, and when we look at other places in scripture and we know that there's going to be an apostasy and there's this great apostasy this left your first love and these false apostles is also speaking of this great apostasy and i want to suggest to us it's going to involve the people in the land of israel smyrna what was characteristic in this letter the synagogue of satan and they're about to suffer so that also kind of gives us an insight and clue that in the end times, there's going to be great persecution at the hands of those who claim to be Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Pergamum, Satan's throne and where Satan dwells. And we know that Antichrist is coming. Pergamum is in play for who this Antichrist is going to be. Thyatira, they're known for its purple dye. And Jezebel, When you get to Revelation 17, there's this great harlot who sits on many waters, clothed in purple and sitting on a scarlet beast. Sardis, when he says, like a thief, the day of the Lord. When you get to Revelation 16, that's the battle of Armageddon. Like a thief, when he will come like a thief. See, like, look, there's this, these letters has clues and pieces of what's being unfolded later. And it all comes to an head. When you look at Philadelphia, and he says there's an open door, and this hour of testing, by this time, we have the kingdom established, and we have the seven bold judgments in Revelation 16. Well, the kingdom isn't established until, at least where I'm inclined, is chapters 19 and 20. But this open door is in reference to the kingdom. But we also know that this hour of testing that is coming is in reference to the seven bold judgments. And when we get to Laodicea, and they're characteristic of lukewarm, and he says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. It's judgment against the unrepentant church at the arrival of Christ. So like, for example, when there was many in Sardis who didn't heed the warning to repent and to cease engaging in their sexual immorality. When he's about to spit them out of his mouth, that's also pointing to judgment against even them who were raised at that time at the arrival or at his appearing. 
So when you look at these letters, there's elements that will materialize as we progress in this book. So I think he's also kind of telling us, using these churches, of how things are going to materialize and the timing of them. Another takeaway. If you were to ask me, okay, how are we to view and yeah, how are we to view these seven letters? Kind of as a set. They're examples for all churches that follows of what to do and what not to do. In other words, what to pursue and what to avoid. And if we look at Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 10, and he makes mention of God not being pleased at the people of Israel during their wilderness wanderings, he writes there, Now these things happen as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. He goes, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So one of the takeaways in going through these seven letters to these seven churches These are examples for the churches that follow of what to do and not to do and how our Lord viewed them. It will be the same way on how he will view future churches in his judgment. They're kind of guinea pigs in a way. And last but not least, another key takeaway, I believe that these seven letters to the seven churches are warnings for the churches that follow not to be deceived. Would it surprise you that the recipients of this letter, let's even look at Laodicea, who at the time of the penning of this letter, did they think and believe that they were saved? Yes. So another way, another takeaway, when we look at these seven letters to the seven churches, and there was those in Sardis, but there was a few who didn't soil their garments, but many did, and Jesus warned them to repent or else he will come like a thief. There was many in these different churches that were deceived So a way for us to view these seven letters to these seven churches is also to look at it as a warning to churches that follow and those in them of not to be deceived. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6? Pick it up in 9. He goes, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He goes, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't we see in even some churches today, homosexuality is being accepted? If we look at these as examples, those who engaged in sexual immorality, look at Sardis. Are there people in churches today engaged in sexual immorality and pornography and you name it? So these letters to these churches are also examples of not to be deceived. Because Paul says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And many in these churches fit 
that description. And they will be, you know what's in store for them? Is a rude awakening. So for those who don't heed to his exhortation in these letters and the recipients, they're in for a rude awakening. Again, I like going to Laodicea because they're the pretty straightforward one. If none of them repented when they received the recipient or when they received this letter and it was read and they didn't take the offer of saving faith that Christ offered, they were deceived through their life until death and they will be raised to a rude awakening. So it's pretty grave. So these are some takeaways. And how did I get this? Just by us looking at it within itself and resisting just going there right away. But yet I can see why a lot of teachings go there and try to make it applicable today. So I think as long as you have this, you know, the, the learnings and, and the truths communicated in these letters on good foundation, then it, it'll, it'll apply in a lot of different areas in a lot of different churches and denominations. All right, that takes us to the end of this recap. And this was probably the longest of them all. But look, you got a year's worth almost in less than two hours. That's pretty cool, right? Thank you for listening today to Truth Matters Church. We greatly appreciate you tuning in and hope that you are blessed by this teaching. We encourage you to check out our website for hundreds of hours of expository teaching, truthmatterschurch.org. You can also find information on joining our study in person or online. Again, our website is truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.